Hey everybody, welcome to the Twin Cities Wine Podcast. This is Jason Carlson of Twin Cities Wine Education, where we bring you conversations and ideas and information about our local wine scene. And this episode of the podcast actually expands us a little bit, and it will be going into the beer scene as well. We have a very special guest, my good friend John Garland. John Garland got his master's degree in writing at Augsburg College, and while he was there, he was freelancing for the heavy table, for City Pages, and for The Growler. Eventually, he moved on to being the senior editor and the director of specialty publications at The Growler for the last five years. The Growler, unfortunately, folded this last August along with City Pages. And so we lost two major sources of kind of independent edgy journalism in the Twin Cities, and I thought it would be great to bring John on to not only talk about local wine and food journalism, but also talk about the beer scene, which he knows extremely well, and talk about kind of what the future might hold in terms of publications like this, in terms of local breweries, in terms of Minnesota wine. Uh, It's a very expansive conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it quite a bit. If you want to learn more about John, you can find him at johngarlandwrites.com. That's johngarlandwrites.com. And let's get into it. Enjoy the conversation with John Garland after this message from our sponsor. The Wine Workshop is our online wine education platform, and we are super proud of it. It's a fun, interactive, snob-free setting for learning about wine. It's a place you can learn at your own pace. We founded the Wine Workshop to bring down the barriers of wine learning, eliminating pretense, having more fun, bringing you topics relevant to you as a wine consumer. We're having a great time with students around the country and even around the world, and we'd love to have you join us. Learn more at thewineworkshop.net. That is thewineworkshop.net. Hope to see you there soon. All right, John, thank you for joining us today. Jason, it's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome. Awesome to hear your voice. I hope everything's going well for you. Um, I'm sorry to hear about the Growler shutting down. That, that was a major disappointment. And then soon after that, of course, City Pages shut down. So let's talk about kind of the state of that independent journalism that you know so well in the Twin Cities. Yeah, it's it's a bummer. Um, I was uh, really happy with what we were able to accomplish at the Growler. I was there for almost seven years. It, uh, I feel like it, it had a great run. We told some great stories. I think we advanced the conversation in a, in a lot of different ways that we wanted to, and and City Pages did as well. And it's without the two of those publications now, it's it's a mammoth loss. There's a, there's a huge hole. I mean, especially City Pages. The first thing I I, I couldn't stop thinking about uh, when I heard of City Pages going down was the number of great writers who started there, who really honed their their skills there. And you know, from Dara Moskowitz to James Norton to Mecca Bowes to, and even in the last couple of years, M. Cassell and Sarah Brumble did a fantastic job with food coverage. And, and, and now, you know, where is that next generation of, of really good stewards of food journalism locally going to come from? It, exactly. uh, it, there, there's a huge hole and it's a, it, it's a tremendous loss. 
Well, be, be, before we dive more into the city pages and the and the loss, let's go back to the Growler. And for people that are not familiar with the Growler, explain kind of what it was. Yeah, so we as a company started out in, I, I believe it was 2010, as uh, the Beer Dabbler um, and the series of beer sampling festivals that, that had been going on for, we had about nine years up until the pandemic uh, hit. Um, so it was uh, a beer-focused business from the beginning. Uh, our, our publisher sort of came out of The Onion uh, and, and that local uh, publishing world uh, before that shut down uh, in print. And he saw a hole in, in the local landscape for you know, some really smart coverage of what was then a burgeoning industry uh, of something totally new on the local scene, microbreweries and, and the sort of the new cultural nexus that they would introduce to the to the twin cities and so when the growler started and who, who was that that founded the growler originally uh his name is matt canavan um and uh, okay. the beard the beer dabbler still survives um the, the growler's been shut down but the beer dabbler as a company is is still is still working um they're they're doing some uh, mixed 12 packs that, that are being sold through certix right now called dabbler in a box which i would highly recommend well, that's cool go out and uh, and get those you you get there these 12 packs and they've got uh you know 12 beers from 12 different breweries plus uh links to a video series where you get interviews with all the brewers plus uh i think there's stand-up comedy and music and just a lot of a lot of cool stuff that's involved well, that's in sort of cool. trying to trying to replicate the beer dabbler experience at home um so yeah so we so the growler magazine was an offshoot of this of this beer dabbler business and when the growler started in 2012 it was a it was a very beer focused magazine you know everything was about beer and as the local brewing landscape kind of changed as the as our readership developed we started talking about a lot of different things we started diving more into food and spirits and wine and local culture and we did a lot of music and comedy and bigger stories that sort of revolve around food and drink and not not just beer and it, it was a really it was a unique magazine uh, locally it, it, um, it was a culturally important magazine and and you no know, not not to belittle anything that the growler did in its early years but it just seemed like the last two or three years it really hit its groove it just all of a sudden everything moved up to a different level in terms of just the look, the feel, the the journalism, the photography, the the editing, the everything seemed to be hitting on all cylinders. And it's just so sad to see it not here. Yeah. And so on, on the back side of things, you know, um, I'm just very curious what made for the implosion. Well, uh, I mean, it and implosion was, is probably a too big of a word. It, it, the, what what made for the sad end to the growler? Yeah, I mean, it was it was advertising um, ad- advertising res- revenue was was down a little bit. I mean, obviously, as the pandemic started, you know, food uh, businesses were were one of the first to take a, a big hit. And so, you know, when when a lot of restaurants aren't aren't advertising that that wasn't good for the business. Uh, but ultimately, it's it's tough to make magazines solvent in in local publishing. Um, it always has been. It's uh, it grew more so over the years. And, you know, the Growler magazine was doing pretty okay by itself, but it was really buoyed by the Beer Dabbler event business. I mean, that's that's what allowed the Growler to do what it did. And and obviously when the pandemic hit and events were no longer on the table, that was, you know, a good 
two thirds of our business's revenue just uh, shut off immediately. And right. um, it, it didn't matter how how well. And I, I, I agree. And I'm, I'm so glad that you kind of noticed in those last couple of years, because we also felt like we had really kind of crescendo in those last couple of years, we had assembled just an absolutely magnificent team of editors, photographers, and, and support staff in, in our business. And I, I was so proud of, of what we were doing, but the, the lack of events business just made the magazine uh, untenable. Sure, sure. And let, let's bring City Pages back into the conversation here. So you, you did some work with City Pages in, in the past, correct? Uh, very briefly, I, um, I I had one byline at City Pages, and it was in 2015, and it was a cover story about um, a guy who I was sort of following in the local comedy scene, and it was just sort of a it was a it was a profile of of what it sort of the grind of local comedy and nice. going going to open mics and and booking shows and dealing with bookers and trying to get noticed and and I just sort of uh, picked one person to sort of be the avatar of trying to navigate through this world. I, I was. Who was that? Uh, his his name was Dan Mogul. I, I he's still doing a little bit of comedy, not a ton. I met him. He was he was a super nice guy, and and um, and he was he was great fun to interview and, and follow him on the road for for a couple weeks. And and I and I loved working with City Pages. Uh, you know, I I had a, a very casual acquaintanceship with a couple editors there, and I just sort of I was working on this piece, and I didn't quite know what to do with it, and I sent it over to them, and they were very supportive of it. They liked the idea. I, I loved working with their editors, and it was it was a great experience. That's great. That's great. Very cool. So going back to uh, the Growler as well now, Growler being beer centric. Who brought up the idea of let's write about wines as well to the editors at first? Well, I I was definitely part of you know coming from the wine world in in sort of the limited capacity that I I did. I we all sort of recognized pretty early on that a magazine is not going to be successful, especially a magazine that's trying to appeal to a wide variety of people. Uh, if we just stick with beer and every article is about beer, then we're we're eventually going to lose a lot of the readers that we might have wanted to pick up. And and we we know that there aren't many consumers out there who just drink one type of beverage. And there's no pun intended a thirst for knowledge uh, on all fronts. <laughs> um, as and as, as people got to know more about beer and different beer styles and kind of what. This, this new local industry in Minnesota was doing, uh, we, we saw that same kind of fervor for those stories to spilling over into wine and spirits. People sure. wa- wanted to know more uh, about, you know, what makes Minnesota whiskey different than Jack Daniels or, you know, what makes Minnesota wine different than, than Napa or, or France. We'll come back to that because I really want to talk to you quite a bit about Minnesota wines in particular. Mm-hmm. But I but going back to the the idea of people, the readers want to learn about more than just their one beverage, the just beer. I think that that's a very generational thing because back when I started in the 1990s over at Certix, people came in and they were either spirits drinkers or beer drinkers or wine drinkers, and they really didn't cross over. And it's people, I think people have to realize that this is a very new kind of generational shift. Our friend Ryan Opaz calls them liquid agnostics. Ah. And, and I love that term where, where people are kind of be, will be jumping around back and forth and around and around on uh, their beverage of choice. 
So Yeah, very, very little loyalty to any one brand, any one beverage. I mean, take the take the rise two years ago of the category of hard seltzer. I mean, nobody <laughs> in the oh world God. was asking for this beverage. And yeah. yet it comes out, it gains a following, people want to know about it, people are excited about it. And it caught me by surprise, certainly. Uh, but it just goes to show you that there, uh, that especially younger people are are very much uh, adventurous and and not beholden to any one style of drinking or any any one type of drinking. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Do you think that it's more difficult for a brand or a new brand to grab market share if people aren't buying? the third or the fourth or the fifth bottle if, if instead that you know that was so two minutes ago now i need to go back to trying to find something new all the time do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing i mean it's it's a good thing for consumer choice it's a tough thing if you're a brewery and i got to imagine an even harder thing if you're a winery like you know a brewery can put out a new different kind of beer you know every other week if they want to but it's not like it's not like a winery is gonna gonna release their you know cabernet of the month every time the wind changes on what people want for their specific you know style of we wine this you know? a hop rocket yeah <laughs> Exactly. So, I, and and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And we talked to a lot of brewers that said the same thing. You know, they they it's really hard to sort of keep up with what the next thing is and 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 try to intuit. You know, is this uh, a flash in the pan or is this something that people are really going to want? Uh, you know, in in the future, and 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 you have to invest time and resources and 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 money and thought into developing new products. And you know, I, I think one. One example that really sticks out in my mind is the is the beer style, the Brute IPA, that was for you know one month about two years ago, just the hottest thing in the world. Everyone was making these super dry, you know, a lot of them had wine yeast or champagne yeast that really dried out the finish of these IPAs, and they were real right. bi- real bitter and real dry, and they were kind of marketing them as almost like wine like beers. And, you know, there were people saying that, oh, these are the next big thing. And then like, you know, three months later, nobody was making them anymore. And, you know, people just forgot about them. So, yeah, I, it's and, and I don't know. I mean, I'm not the kind of, of drinker that is is chasing the latest and greatest release, the, the newest hop, the newest barrel aged, whatever. I kind of have my standards that I stick to. And I think that makes me an outlier right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, yeah, it, it's got to be incredibly tough if if you're a brewery to kind of you can you certainly make that the first product uh you know yeah if there's a new trend you can get in there once will you get in there a second third or fourth time or will there be you know now with there are seven thousand breweries in america you're not even if you get some attention some market share you might not have it for long so i i want to stick on beer a little bit more and then we'll come back around to wine Mm -hmm. um because you're the most knowledgeable local beer guy that I know. And so a a very generic question to you, a basic question is, are we oversaturated? Have we hit that point yet? What's your opinion? What's your answer to that? I don't think so. Um, If you look at the numbers and compare us to other metropolitan areas, as, as far as breweries per capita go, we are well behind a lot of more developed beer scenes in the country. Per capita, we lag far behind places like Denver, San Diego, um, smaller East Coast cities, especially in Vermont, New York. So 
there there is room for growth i think in in local beer um where exactly is another question you know a lot of the the growth that we've seen in uh, minnesota beer in the last year or two has happened outstate it's been happening in places like Rochester and Duluth and sure. second, even second and third ring suburbs, yep. you know, play, it wasn't until, you know, what was it? Uh, I think two years ago, I think it was 2018 or might've been 2019 that Bloomington changed their, you know, city charter to finally allow for local breweries. And that's the fifth. Oh, really? they, they didn't even allow it up until then. Exactly. The fifth biggest city in Minnesota and they didn't have a single brewery. So there are still places where local beer can grow. And to my mind, the, the smartest place for them to grow right now is being small and staying small. It's a very precarious position right now in the beer world to be uh, to have, say, regional aspirations, you know, um, to want to be in four to five to six states. Um, to, to be the next Surly. Right. Uh, because then you're you're going to be working with probably a different distributor. You're going to be going into a new state that doesn't know who you are. And there are already 500 breweries in that state. And, you know, it, unless you have a very strong ground game, unless you've got, um, you know, people out really hitting the pavement say or even like a satellite brewery for example indeed brewing launched a, a second tap room in wisconsin and that's sort of their their idea to break into uh, a new state but uh, to me that's you know when we saw that summit found themselves a little overextended they had to pull back out of some states that they tried to go into i think the same was true for surly and I, I think that that's just that's just a tough place to be right now. There's there's a lot of competition, and I think the smartest thing a brewery could do right now is just to lock down their city, their neighborhood, get a core following where they know that they've got sort of a stable fan base to just grow patiently from there. Uh, but I think the days of the the next Sam Adams or Dogfish Head or Lagunitas, I think the chances for that kind of stratospheric growth are are in the rear view. Sure, sure. It's uh, it's uh, you made a quick mention of boots on the ground. A, a quick mention of you know you better have a, a good good team, but a good uh, game going on out there. Uh, one of the reasons that we want to do this podcast is that one of the things I want to bring to the public is how difficult it is for the buyer at retailers and restaurants when you're dealing with relationships and with friendships and with obligations combined with consumer demand on the other side and trying to be ahead of the game. With beer, it's in overdrive because it's local and people know each other. And you end up kind of owing a favor or you end up making a a false promise or a promise while you've been sampling a little bit too much product, things like that. And all of a sudden you see the tap handles changing. You see a little bit of frustration on the buyer's face and it really is a problem. It's something that I think that a lot of buyers are not trained in how to handle in terms of the relationships. But have you talked to buyers that kind of feel that angst or feel that pressure? Yeah, I think there's definitely that pressure. Um, and and I think that even extends, you know, from before there were, uh, you know, tons and tons of, of choices because even when there weren't a hundred breweries in Minnesota, there were still a hundred import brands to, to consider. And, sure. you know, people, you know, buyers would have to deal with person that, you know, if it, now it, now it might be, you know, the new IPA from Mankato, but then it was the new 
you know, maybe not new, but uh, a brown ale from Flanders in Belgium that they'd, they'd never heard of before. Right. So I think that pressure has always kind of existed. Of course, it's it's now that that there's a little more fervor for locally made products that it's it's definitely intensified. And and another thing, especially in in smaller, especially like retail in in smaller uh, smaller liquor stores, is that there's really only so much cooler space. And oh yeah, yep. No, cooler and cooler thing. space is the thing. I mean, nobody wants to be on the warm shelf. Nobody wants to be, you know, stuck, uh, you know, stuck by the, you know, whatever the the jug wines or whatever on the, right. you know, in the middle of the store where nobody goes. So that was I, I remember, you know, a few times at the Growler, you know, reporting on, you know, talking to buyers, talking about like, you know, constantly, you know, every two or three months going back and you know doing the planogram on their cooler space and trying to make sure <laughs> that every, you know yeah oh exactly that every that all of their you know all of their sales rep friends are happy and they've but then also you know that there are there are certain you know pressures between you know wanting to get the you know the latest greatest ipa in the cooler but then also understanding that x number of your sales come from coors light and you might have to have that's right six skews of the same product taking up space and, and, and in, that, in the wine world it's going to be your your yellowtail pile yeah. um, and your apothic red pile and does that make you enough money to have all the cool funky weird stuff on the other side exactly right i yeah. i worked uh, at a at a liquor store in uh, lower town st paul for a couple of years and uh, i can i remember that you know when we'd have you know reps come in and talk about oh this new brewery's coming online people love their whatever their boysenberry ipa and and you got to get it in and you know we'd get it in and you know it, one of those might you know they they'd sit they'd sit in the cooler for you know, a month. And meanwhile, I'd, I'd be selling 20 cases of Coors Light a day. Right, and right. I'm just, I'm just looking at half of my coolers, just languishing sitting there. And I'm just, well, like, and, and one thing the public I don't think realizes is that there's a state law that makes consignment sales for liquor illegal. And right. so it's actually illegal for the distributor to receive product backwards from the retailer right. um so if something doesn't sell it's on the retailer i mean that that's that's money and space all wrapped up there and it is a problem because i there are a lot of liquor stores and wine shops around town that if you don't buy carefully you're stuck it comes to a point where you're not selling anything but you don't have space for anything new at the same time absolutely and and that problem is is only going to intensify um as as more breweries come online but i actually yeah. think that um that one of the smart things that that some local brewers are doing now is is not building their business so they don't have to rely on retail and and yep. distribution the direct consumer absolutely um you know you, you obviously make more money on a pint when somebody comes to your house uh yep. so i yep. think that if any local breweries starting up now I would I would highly encourage them to to make that the, the center of their business model. So so let's shift into wine because that, that's a really good easy point to uh, jump into wine because direct consumer sales are up seventeen percent year to date mm. compared to last year and that's a national number. In Minnesota, you find very very little retail energy or shelf space or money being put into Minnesota products. Actually, ironically, Total Wine is kind of the leader in having Minnesota wines on their shelf. Hmm. 
but at the same time, the wineries are really kind of building their business and their financial models based on direct consumer sales. So I would love your thoughts on this because with beer, you know, it, it's it's brand building, it's local, it's tap handles, it's at presence at restaurants. With Minnesota wine, there there is this big kind of question mark, you know, I, from wineries. How do you do it? How, how can we crack this code and get people excited about Minnesota wine when really we should not go into distribution because all of our finances are based on direct consumer? Yeah, and and, and it's really interesting too because when you think of where a lot of, you know, look at the business plan of a lot of wineries in Minnesota, you think that, yes, wine is their business, but also events are their business, you know, like a a lot of these, you know, I I once went to a a local wine conference and I heard a speaker uh, talking to, uh, talking to these local wineries and uh, winery owners. And his message was like, look, get this through your head. You're in the wedding business first and the wine business second. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely accurate. And so, yeah. So even trying to navigate the, the difference, the differences between, you know, how much, how many times and resources do you uh, do you develop into into kind of a direct to consumer versus retail presence even that question is is new for Minnesota wineries because they are most of them are probably not used to that chunk of it being such an important part of their sales well they they found out this year they I mean, sure did yeah you know and I, and I feel bad for all of them because they're just between this gigantic rock and a hard place in terms of you know, where do you take your business model and how do you pay the bank? And, and especially, and, when, and not, even just wine, not even just weddings, but so much of the Minnesota wine experience has been trying to get people to come out and see these wineries. You know, they, they yes. put so much effort into these, you know, winery passport uh, programs. You know, it's, it's all about come out, bring a picnic, get a bottle of wine. You don't expect to see Minnesota wine on the shelves in retail. So it's all about come out for the experience, remember the experience, and then hopefully wineries that have been doing that well can hopefully get some kind of direct consumer wine club thing going. Because as anyone who has ever been to Napa knows, you know, you go to your third winery and all of a sudden you've signed up for a wine club. And <laughs> So <laughs> wine's arriving, whether you remember it or not. Exactly. So, and and I think that's you know, in, in, in when in absence of I don't know what Total Wines salesmanship is, but I highly doubt that they're out there hand selling these Minnesota wines, right? I no, I, no, I no, highly no. doubt that no, they're the, putting they're, they're hand selling their own product. They, exactly. they, they got to make money. So <laughs> exactly. So. Um, so, but, but what's your opinion about Minnesota wine right now? And that's a real general question, but right. um, but but I, I ask it in a general way intentionally because that's how I get asked. What's your opinion of Minnesota wine? Absolutely. I get this question all the time. Uh, I have been, I've had the good fortune to be a judge at the International Cold Climate Wine Competition for the last nine years. Uh, they, they did not uh, hold the competition this year, but from 2011 to 2019, uh, I've been judging this competition. And it is a competition in which any state that grows cold climate wine, that is wine made from grapes specifically bred to thrive in uh, freezing climates, they can submit wines. And you know the, we, we get them from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Vermont, Michigan, all over Canada. And, and it's been really interesting to have the opportunity 
every year for the last nine years to see the development of all of these wines because it's I don't know how much your your listeners know about the development of Minnesota wine, but the the raw materials that these winemakers are working with are very new. You know, Pinot Noir has been around, you know, since Julius Caesar, but Marquette <laughs> has only been around for the last 25 years or whatever it, it is. Yeah, so, even less than that, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think it was like 1990, I think maybe it, it, was, yeah. it was released. And so I, I think what I, what I always keep... Mar- Marquette is almost old enough legally to drink that's why i always like to tell people (laughs) yeah and when you're you know a a vintner you get one shot a year to figure out how to work with these brand new grapes i mean these these are so every single year we're learning a little bit more about best practices for how these grapes should be grown how it should be vinified and it takes time I, i i tell people that in 2011 when i judged that competition for the first time just about half of the samples that I tasted were not just bad, but undrinkable. <laughs> yeah. Were were so, so bad. But but it was that it was that ten percent of wines, you know? It was those couple of sips that I took and I thought, wow, we this could be something. This could be really, really interesting. And yeah. over the last nine years, I think the quality of Minnesota wine has grown exponentially. In twenty nineteen I, I remember tasting through a flight of white wines and thinking that they were all interesting and complex and nuanced words that I never associated with Minnesota wine. You know, even at the time, say, you know, 10 years ago, the best Minnesota wines were good. You know, they were right. a little fruity. They had a little snap to them. Okay, they're good. But in the last couple of years, I think the vinification uh, among Minnesota wineries has really matured. Things like uh, oh, in the last couple of years, the, the the number of skin contact whites that I've yeah. been drinking from local wineries, so, so interesting. You know, trying to figure out what are the best uses for some of these grapes like Frontenac Gris that have these really, really interesting tannins when you when you leave the when you leave the skins on or or, or even uh, grapes like Frontenac, which are kind of terrible as a still wine, but when you do when you do it the right rosé or you give it the right fortified application, it really kind of it, it takes the the fruitiness and 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 delivers it into the right avenue. And so I, I really think that within the last four or five years, the the professionalism, the the modernity, the the just the sort of the general consciousness of how what kind of wines are people looking for has has really grown among minnesota vintners and and i think they're starting to think of their products not just as a local curiosity but but in a little bit more of a maybe a regional or national sense not to say that the best of minnesota compares with the best of you know say california or washington um but there's certainly the, the professionalism and way in which they're constructing their wines has has grown in that vein. I, I, I've always encouraged the the Minnesota wineries to not try to play the local wine card. Yeah. You know, to, to not, don't play the card that says, well, we're local and you buy local food and use, use local ingredients. So therefore, you have to support us. I, I, I think that that is wrong. It has to all be based on quality. But I think that the quality level is going up and up and up. And I don't know if you've seen the documentary Wine Diamonds. It's on it's on Netflix if I remember right, or else or else Amazon Prime. But it's a profile of cold climate grape growers. And and in that movie, the most interesting little quick tidbit is uh, Doug Frost, 
who is a MSMW, one of only four MSMWs in the entire world down in Kansas City, who says, I'm more excited about what's happening with cold climate grape varieties in the Dakotas and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa than I am about California right now. And mm-hmm. and it's something that I think Minnesotans don't realize is that people outside of Minnesota are talking about Minnesota wines. You know, it, and it, it's, a, it's a very interesting moment. It's like an inflection point that we're in right now. But, and and to get back to you know what you said about just new consumers being liquid agnostics, you know, yeah. where whereas thirty years ago you you know you were a cabernet drinker and nothing else, I I, I think a, a lot of younger people don't have the same prejudice against La Crescent or whatever. They're looking for something that tastes good and they're looking exactly. for something that's interesting. They're looking with something with a story behind it. And it's not that they're drinking it necessarily because it's local, but they're finding a different tasting beverage out there. I mean, Minnesota wines, because of the construction, the actual chemistry of the grapes that they're working with, legitimately taste different. And and I think that people are latching onto those differences. So uh, you mentioned um, the story. They're looking for a uh, wine of the story. So here's a uh, question directly to you as a writer. Is it the quality of fill-in-the-blank beverage or is it the story behind the beverage? What, what, which is more important? The quality has to be there. I mean, that's that's number one. Um, yeah. You know, there's... There are too many beverages out there for there to really be an emperor has no clothes situation with, right. with a wine. If it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter how good your story is. And it's and it's really, you know, it's tough for but me I, I, as a, as a writer. Think about the natural wine movement, though. I mean, you know, there's a lot of a lot of natural wine that is questionable, that is chemically um, defective. But the story is what brings people in. So I, I, I agree with you, but I also disagree with you. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. That's why, that's why I wanted to ask you this question. I think natural wine is, is a little bit of an outlier in this situation just because that the story of the wine is that it is variable. It's unpredictable. And yes, I mean, some of them do taste bad. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, but but I think that is that's that's such a compelling part of the story. Like it, I think it, I they're a little bit analogous to you know wild fermented uh, and mixed culture beer, in, okay. in in the sense that these are beers that are being fermented with a, a mix of yeast and bacteria. Uh, sometimes they're lab cultured, sometimes they are not, and so so even within uh, the beer circles, I've seen people gravitate to different tastes and flavors that come from these sort of spontaneous fermentations that I personally don't like at all. But I I think a lot of people see those kind of products as sort of the, the expanding horizon of what the beverage is, you know, and, and they, they see new tastes, they see new profiles. They see that as where the beer industry is kind of expanding, innovating, trying to, become something new people are not going to just drink pilsner in the, in the beer world yeah. Yeah. um they're they're looking for the they're looking for the new thing and there are only also so many so many hops there are only so many malts and so i, I think that 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 is sort of like the the natural wine of the beer world right now and yeah i would say that some of the beers because they're using strains of bacteria that i don't think are particularly delicious other people would not see that as a, a mark of poor quality they would they'd, right. they'd see it as a, a mark of 
the the brewer tried something. It's it's a stab at innovation. Well, and and this and, is what's so interesting between the beer world and the wine world. If a winery started talking about, we introduced this weird bacteria and this funky yeast strain just to see what would happen, people would just kind of run away. I mean, you don't talk about adding bacteria into your wine. I mean, it just doesn't happen, even though it does happen. Yeah, you know? right. it, but it's not, not part of the open conversation. And I think that it's fascinating to compare and contrast the beer and the wine world in terms of what are people seeking out and why. And I mean, this all came to me one day when I was sitting at the bar at the Groveland Tap having a beer and Mark was talking to me behind the bar and Mark is like, hey, do you want to try our, our Hop Rocket beer? And I'd never heard of a Hop Rocket. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on. And yeah. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, we pushed the beer through this thing and we add a bunch of hops. I'm like, bullshit there, there's no way that you're going to take a, like a wine and like pour it through a, a filter and add raspberry essence along with you know dried leaf leaves and you know a tea concoction into a wine and then say hey try this but then i started to think about it it's like well why not why, why wouldn't a wine bar alter their own product that they buy in order to kind of make it their own flavor but it's just a different part of the world. It's a, it's a different idea. Yeah, but uh, but also I think there there you definitely are starting to see some wineries sort of like I say for example like last year uh, I was looking for a bottle of sparkling or something to bring to an event and I was I, I ended up picking up uh, I think it was the field recordings uh, dry, oh sure yeah. dry hop uh, they, yeah. they do a pet nap that's dry hopped and I thought yep. I was sitting there thinking like all right I, I'm already not the hugest fan of dry hop beers but I, I, I've had some good stuff from field recordings before. Uh, yep. Maybe I give it a shot. I mean, it's what it was what Chardonnay and Mosaic hops. And the more I kind of started to think about <laughs> those two things together, I was like, well, maybe. And I wait, tasted wait, was it in a bottle or a can. It was bottled. Okay. Yeah. They, 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 I think the first year they did that, they actually put it in a can mm. and it came with a can cozy. The, the label for the, <laughs> The label for the wine was actually the can cozy. The can itself was blank. Love and it. I don't know how they pushed that through with um, the BATF, but they, they got it through. It was a very strange thing. Fantastic. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I wonder also, you know, where the wine world is, is going to try to innovate in, in their product mix. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm surprised that the same kind of um, rapid, throw something at the wall and see what sticks kind of style that some breweries have gone through lately you know it hasn't or at least to my mind translated over to the wine world and no. i i start to wonder is that is that an economics thing is that a you know and like we said you know you can only you only have certain amount of grapes you only have certain amount of tank space you only have certain amount of things that you can that, that a winery can can invest their time and resources into yeah if you if you're 100 percent direct consumer and people are visiting the winery and it's hyper local i'm thinking about like washington state you know mm -hmm. where there there are so many wineries but so few of them actually sell outside of the state Maybe you can play, you know, maybe, maybe you can kind of goof off a little bit and see what happens, but it's, um, it's risky in the wine business. Yeah. You, it, you, it's got to start with the following, right? You, you've got to have a dedicated base. That's good. That's going to allow you to experiment like that. Exactly. So let's, uh, let's transition into the crystal ball before we wrap up here. We're deep in COVID. Uh, you and I are recording this in early November, 2020, yeah. uh, restaurants are struggling to say the least. And all the business models are changing. Do you have any personal guesses or senses of what 
things might be like in three, four, five years? Yeah, I'm right now. I'm pessimistic. I, I really yeah. am. Um, part of me thinks that when when the dust is settled here, if if there's no specific relief coming from the from the government for restaurants, my worry is that we are headed back to sort of a uh, sort of the the nineteen 19- 70s or or early 80s in in a gastronomic sense that the only restaurants left over will be a handful of very posh very expensive fine french inflected gastronomy for rich people we'll have a, we'll have some a handful right. of those places left over and then chains as far as the eye can see yeah. um because the the independent restaurants in the middle are are just I mean, you, you just need to pick up a newspaper and you see them dropping like flies. And it, yeah. it really, really concerns me that, that that's what we're heading towards. It, it's going to be tough. I mean, there's no no doubt about it. And I forget who said it. I just read an article two days ago that somebody compared it to, uh, or somebody said the restaurant industry will recover. There's no doubt about that. But yeah. we're going to have an ice age-like extinction event before that. And I thought that was a very powerful and sadly accurate statement that that something's going to happen here where wipe out the uh, possibility. But we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, the restaurant tours tend to be pretty creative types and actually fewer have closed than I actually thought would would close. Yeah, so far. And I've got to hand it to any of the you know any of the, the the restaurants out there that have done a successful pivot to takeout or meal kits or that kind of thing. It's it's obviously, I mean, could not be tougher to do right now. But maybe that will be a, a bigger part of the standard restaurant's business model oh, for sure. in the future. I mean, for maybe, sure, There's and, no doubt. And and I think a lot of a lot of businesses started to, or at least a lot of a lot of restaurants started to look at their menu. And when they started thinking about what does and does not play well for takeout, I think it's you know they they started to key in on what kinds of food people really want to be eating the rise of the fried chicken sandwich oh my god the rise of the fried chicken sandwich exactly yep Yep. and and the loss of french fries so yeah well i I kind of i remember uh did you ever see the the film about the um the beginning of the mcdonald's franchise the founder did you ever see that oh no i i've not seen that one yet there's there's a moment where ray Kroc, i think is played by michael keaton is talking to the mcdonald brothers who started the mcdonald's and he asked them sort of what the secret to their success was is that well we looked at a standard burger joint that offers 30 things on their menu and we realize that 90 percent of the sales come from cheeseburgers fries and malts right so why should we offer anything more than cheeseburgers fries and malts and i think that that's kind of the way that that restaurants hopefully are going to orient themselves in the future is that you know i think the crave model of dining is going to be pretty antiquated pretty soon the trying to be everything to everybody before covid let's just admit that yeah pizza pizza and steak and sushi under one roof is is not the way forward right and and i think what i hope and and we've actually already started to see it in some of these businesses that have actually been brave enough to pop up and and start serving in, in in the pandemic is that they are hyper hyper focused on one specific thing maybe they make the best 
stone ground tortillas and just some, right. you know, some good carnitas to go with it. Or they just make the best roast beef sandwich you've ever had. And that's it. And I think the more restaurants can specialize in that one thing, I, I kind of think of like the food scene in Tokyo where these restaurants do one thing, you know, you've got one guy who's been making yakitori and nothing but yakitori for the last 40 <laughs> years. And it's yeah. amazing because they don't have to plan the overhead and the staffing and the resources that go into trying to have this big expansive menu. If you can just focus on one thing, you can control your expenses, you can control your message and your marketing, and you can hone in on finding the fan base that's looking for that one thing. And I think that's why these fried chicken restaurants have, have really, or these fried chicken sandwich restaurants have, yep. have done such a great job is they've, they've figured out one easy thing that people love. And, and even before the pandemic hit in San Francisco, there was a sudden trend of restaurant design where if possible, restaurants had two doors, one for the public to come in and one for the delivery drivers to come in. Mm. And then on that side with the delivery drivers, there was like a locker system. So just your, your, your orders in locker 13, grab it, go, get out of here. We'll see if that kind of translates into the future because I think that restaurant design is going to change completely because I, I can't see everybody rushing to go back out to eat. Uh, there's going to be a slow transition back to, you know, quote unquote normal, but takeout is going to be the only the only salvation for a lot of restaurants. And I also think that that a big um, that an area where a lot of restaurants or at least some that are located in a place where it might make sense could could start to capitalize on is grab and go. I mean, prepared yeah. foods that are and you know, if you have a you if you have a central location, say you're near a bus line, say you're on a, a major thoroughfare, you know, having a cooler of stuff that is just ready to, for people to grab that's still quote unquote restaurant quality or, right. or a quick walk up window where you can get a quick slice before you get back on the light rail or whatever. I, I think that's, that's going to be a huge opportunity too. And especially if, if restaurants can dial in a, a grab and go concept, then that can translate to retail too. So right. I, I think there, I think there is room, but I think the sort of the, the era of big expansive menus and, you know, sitting down to, multi-course finicky you know micro plates of the, of French the, the, the food. tweezers have been put away yeah i mean they'll they'll <laughs> go back to, they'll go back to being a once a year thing like they've always been yeah. they, like they yeah. were up until about the last 20 years exactly exactly so uh, as we wrap it up let's uh remember it's a wine podcast so i'll bring us back to wine with your background and all the changes that you've seen and knowing a lot of consumers and seeing the industry on the backside. What do you recommend to the end consumer just in terms of learning more about wine and being able to expand their palate and their curiosity? The thing I tell people, people who know that I know wine and they yep. say, how do I want it? How do I get to know more about wine? When they drink wine with me, they are flabbergasted that I smell This is one thing that I, that I just tell everybody who wants to learn about wine. Just think about it. Think about it when you're drinking it. Don't just drink it. Yeah. Smell it. Look at it. Smell it now and smell it in 30 minutes. Drink it now and drink it in 30 minutes. Think about why you like what you like. Think about, do you like this chilled? Do you not like it chilled? Why is that, you know? I think what people... Wine is such a almost eternal, almost infinite, almost 
you know, such a, it's such an expansive thing, you know, you're, you're up against the weight of history when you come in <laughs> to the wine world and no, no, you know, no pressure. Yeah. No pressure. Right. And, and, and it's, I hear a lot of people say, Oh, I don't even know where to start. And I say, start with the glass in front of you. Just start yep. thinking. You don't have to, I mean, obviously find a liquor store where one of their sales people will spend a couple minutes with you and really try to get you into the bottle that you like. Um, you know, I mean, where, where, where do you like to shop? My go-to is South Lindale Liquors. Yeah, I I live in the Armitage neighborhood. It's not too far away from me. I think they've got a fantastic selection, and they Daniel's killing it over there. Absolutely, and that's that's what I just you know you you're never gonna you know just like anything you're not gonna to learn all there is to know right away. But it's just like you get little tidbits every every bottle you drink. You, you get to know a little bit, tiny bit more, if you think about it, about what you like and what you don't. And if the only thing you get out of a bottle of wine is, well, I don't think I like Syrah, then you've learned something. Then yep. that is that is a positive step forward for you in your <laughs> wine journey. And and so when when people, you know, when I'm drinking wine and people look at me like, why are you, why are you constantly sticking your nose in that glass of wine? I just think this is how this is how you learn this you you just you just got to take it one glass at a time that's great all right so final question for you what's the ultimate food and wine combination throw it out there the ultimate you you, you didn't know i was going to ask that i didn't didn't prep you on that sorry about that (laughs) the ultimate food and wine uh combination is champagne and nothing (laughs) <laughs> champagne and air that's right that's what it. it is awesome awesome this is great john thank you so much for joining us and i hope that the future bodes well for you as as a freelance writer it's a the toughest gig in the entire world yeah it is but you know what i'm i'm uh i'm optimistic i think that this is an inflection point for local journalism. I think it's an inflection point for food and and beverage writing. And we're going to have, for better or worse, uh, a blank slate here pretty soon. And uh, these next couple years are going to be about journalists really figuring out what people want from, say, food and beverage coverage. And I'm I'm really excited to read what's going to come out of that. Your optimism is awesome. Thank you very much for having that. That's great. Well, thanks for having me, Jason. That was very cool. Thanks, John. You take care. You too. That was fun. Thank you very much to John Garland for the time and for the insight. I love learning about the local food and wine and beer community through the lens of a local journalist because they have good access to all this information. They usually bring a perspective that goes back years like John has talked about, and I just think it's really, really cool. Don't forget to learn more about John Garland at johngarlandwrites.com, and we would love a five-star review or for you to subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying this let us know Uh, we're having a blast producing it so until next time we'll talk to you soon pop a bottle raise a glass and to friends and family talk to you soon thanks